Hello, and welcome to another episode of um, Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. In this podcast series, I try and talk to, I won't call them renegades, just people that are determined to change the way we do things um, and, and take something that's not great and turn it into great. Um, it's a beautiful day here. I'm stood in the garden. The sun's shining. The birds are singing. Cheeky little chaffinch has just set off my um, ring camera three times, but I'm um, I'm glad of it because I could see it looking amazing. Um, so yeah, everything's feeling up, and this conversation was really up, really positive. Um, Sam is amazing. She is uh, utterly, um, utterly. Oh, what's the word? Uh, energetic, driven, uh, beautiful person, and. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. We we met, I think we met at the house of St Barnabas. And you'll you'll hear a bit of squeaking. I got a pair of shoes with rubber soles on, and every time I moved them on the chapel floor, they squeaked. Uh, it does die down, so forgive that. Um, problem is, I got too good a microphone these days. So um, the conversation was incredible. Really, really enjoyed it. We, we you know, Sam's history. I'm not going to tell you what she is, what she does, um, what she's done in the past. She's just. Um, got a really great reputation as being a totally human being and 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 totally you know in the moment her her work stuff is incredible her passions outside of work are driving kind of political and social change um and she grew an incredible business and um and sold it beautifully so i really hope you enjoy it um she's she's just She's just lovely, and um, I'll talk to you again afterwards. I was thinking about it earlier. As all my friends have kind of gravitated east, I've still stayed in love with this bit. Mm. It's not quite as murky as I'd like it. Well, it's got the history. Yeah, I remember being in the 70s, the early 80s, and it was a bit scary, actually. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Actually. But I'm sat sat with Sam Roddick. Um, Sam, tell um, tell me who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Sam Roddick. That's as far as I, I'm self-identified as female, but I'm learning from my daughter who's 20. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't believe it. No. You haven't said that. But like, we're getting into a whole new world, aren't we? With what? identity and gender. And I'm really trying to learn because I realise I'm at a different generation. I'm like 47, my daughter's 20, and we have a different language. And basically, she thinks my friends, who are probably a set of diverse and cutting-edge thinkers, are archaic. That's, that's, so I, that's, that's what I was thinking, because, because you, you have done so much, yeah. and you led the way in changing perceptions of sex and sexuality in, in, in lots of ways, mm-hmm. with Cockadamur, which yeah. we may, maybe talk about, maybe not, um, and to think that she thinks your Luddite in some way. In some way. It's really interesting. And she's so cute, because she's like, don't worry, Mum, just ask me a question and I'll guide you through. Because one of her friends... I'm dyslexic, so there is this element where, please don't fuck up my grammar. I hardly got a grip on it. (laughs) I'm already confused. It really freaks me out. And it doesn't freak me out, because I don't care what people identify as. I'm really happy to play along with whatever, not even play along, I'm really happy to respect yeah. and kind of get into it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm up for it. It's like, what, whichever way you bend, I'm bending with you. Just but don't mess up my grammar. Don't fuck my grammar because I've got such a bad <coughs> grip on it. 
It's brilliant. But it just gives me a panic attack. Do you know what? You've, you've actually just unlocked a, a little bit of something. So, so my daughter, all my kids are chronically uh, dyslexic, one of which yeah. is particularly dyslexic and yeah. dyspraxic. She's 19, she's in, in America at the moment. And um, her friend is, um, identifies as, a, she's born a, a, a woman, but identifies as a gay male. Right. As a gay boy. Boy? Can I say man? Man. man. Yeah, gay I don't man, know how yeah. old she is. Um, he, he is... Um, <laughs> he, yeah, well done. <laughs> he is um, 19 also. Oh, right. So, so a, a young a, man. A man, yeah. And, and Matilda's preoccupation is... She's brilliant with all that. But her preoccupation is with pronouns. Right. And I'm wondering if... Um, what to call... Like, he, she... Yeah, yeah. So... I'm wondering if that's because of Matilda's dyslexia that she that, that her language has always been maybe questioned, yeah. and now she's absolutely obsessed with getting that bit right. Yeah, maybe. Not at all bothered about anything else. No. Like, it can come and go in and out. Not bothered, inside, which is. And half of me looks at that and thinks that's exactly the way it should be. Kind of. I just think that think you can. I don't. I definitely think it should be or shouldn't be. I actually think that at some point. I'm hoping it's all going to be irrelevant. Um, because, like, and I think it's quite an interesting kind of proposition because um, we really have to be able to see beyond the identity to who somebody is and judge them for how they behave but not what they are. Yeah. And I just think that, like, in many ways, like, so I am archaic in understanding the structure of perception, right? Or I'm archaic in um, the sensitivities of how to kind of br broker, like um, my my introduction or my gateway. Because like I'm I want to take care of people, so yeah. I want to make sure that I remain respectful and caring, but. I don't want to over-identify with how they identify, because actually I want to see a part beyond that as them as a human being. Show me the soul, not, not yeah. the label. And hear the story. So, and I think this is really interesting when it comes to sex and sexuality, is that actually, like, and I was talking about it today, so Coco de Mer is, but I'll just maybe intro. You do it, yeah, people yeah. don't know, some people think it's a face cream, whereas it can be a face cream, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, like creme de mer. So Coco de Mer was the first, um, it was the first female-led luxury sex shop yeah. or erotic boutique. Um, and it was an ethical boutique that had a huge dialogue around um, all of the different aspects about being a, a social sexual society and also on an individual basis. So everything was made ethically, but also it tackled sexual politics. Yeah. But on top of that, it luxuriated in the senses and it was orifice friendly. So it was unafraid, right? I love that. Yeah, yeah exactly. My daily orifice. And then so, um, so, so in that kind of sense, that's what I set up. And so I have been a, um, what you, an expert or somebody that uh, every single like designer of luxury vibrators has come to me for consultation. Really? So, yeah. So like, because we were the birth, like there was Adrian Provocateur before us, but they did only lingerie yeah. and suggestion. Yeah. We did actually orifice and function. And a great advert with Kylie Minogue, actually. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, so on that kind of front, like we were really, we 
occupied sex from a very um, from a, an unafraid place. And I think this is what's quite interesting, is that we still objectify sex. So I was talking today about how we objectify the genitals, yeah. and that we make a penis is a penis, but we forget that a penis is attached to a person. That penis is a person. Yeah. Like, you can't have a penis without a person. So why are we, if, like, why are we basically um, disconnecting it, and disembodying it, and dehumanizing it, and saying, well, that's just rude, or that's obscene. It's yeah. like, actually, no, the person makes the penis obscene. The person can make the penis really, like, gentle and loving. And, and, and beautiful. And beautiful. Yeah. And, like, so, and then there, I read this book yesterday about, and also, so, the way we dehumanise genitalia is how we dehumanise sex and sexuality. Yeah. And so I feel like that we're still so far away from really philosophically understanding the beauty and the role and the importance of sex within our society because we have disconnected it and dehumanized it and it's something that we still have this archaic kind of understanding that it is bigger than us it is detached from us and it's something that we are not fully in control of is the beast right? that's really interesting and, and that's about being scared of what it can reveal about ourselves yeah. as much as anything else. There's loads to pick out here, absolutely loads. Did you see the 100 vaginas, the 100 vulvas piece in The Guardian the other week? No, but I've heard about it and I have to go and watch it and listen to it. But there was, in the 1980s, like all great, um, there was a, 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 a documentary called Dick with 100 dicks which they flashed up and women were talking about the penises and how men felt about the penises and so forth. So yeah, it was quite an interesting, very similar kind of thing. It, it was great, it was yeah. beautiful, it was, it was slightly scary as well. Yeah. Um, what was scary about it? The, the broad range. I, I, no, I just realised I've not seen. No I've not seen enough. I've not seen as many as maybe I should have yeah. done or whatever. Like, the, no vagina looks the same. That, that no. was fascinating. No face looks the same. True. You could probably categorise them like a soft nose or like droopy eyes. You could do like the, the flowery kind of like expressive labia yeah. or the tight little neat labia. Yeah. But no, they don't or, look or the same. The, absolutely, or the droopy, or the or the one side, or the, or the wink, yeah. all of that. Yeah. And 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 it was it was I really enjoyed reading the I read the article rather than saw the film, oh, but okay. I think I think there is a film. Um, but there's a really interesting thing on Facebook where. I think it was on Facebook, it might have been on Twitter. A, a, a man tried to mansplain the difference between vagina and vulva. Oh dear. Oh my, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. brilliant. He was dreadful, obviously, yeah. um, and he's not in any position to do so. Yeah. But the comments... Were just brutal. Uh, no, they were brilliant. They were brilliant. funny, they They're were brilliant. brutal, they were harsh, they were... Hilarious. Yeah, it, it's a great conversation yeah. piece, I have to say. Yeah. But it's, it's really interesting, and there's again, there's loads to pick at here. Um, and I'll always remember cycling down Monmouth Street, the first time I saw Cocker de Mer. I'd seen Agent Provocateur, and I really liked where they were going. Kind of worries me they're owned by Sports Direct now, but but that's it's what happens. Yeah. And I nearly fell off my bike. I was cycling down, look, there's, there's Monmouth. Oh, there, oh my God, what is going on in there? And it was just the, the way you'd set the models up because it felt like it wasn't, it, it didn't feel like any other sex shop I had no. ever seen. No. And the films you made didn't feel like any other film I had right. ever seen. Yeah. And it really mattered. Yeah. It really mattered. And ha so that's one observation. Secondly, 
How did it feel selling it? How did it feel letting go of it? Well, it wasn't so... I mean, it was very painful to let go of it, but um, I was running the company by myself, and I was, like, like prolifically creative. So we were designing the products, because yeah. no products existed when I opened up Paper Tomatoes. We had to make all the cock rings, the butt plugs, all, all of the glass dildos, everything. the lot. We had to commission it all. So I either got great artisans, local artisans, yeah. to do it, um, and then, but they, they, they designed my designs, my ideas. Wow. And so, like, I populated the kind of the world of like craftsmanship with sexual objects, but of DNA quality. And um, I think so, the amount of products we kind of created was unrealistic for n not sharing. Do you want to check it out? Yeah, it's all good. Okay. So yeah. for not sharing um, the platform with, say, a business manager or somebody who could run the business operations, um, I, I really needed a partner in crime. But fundamentally, I sold my company at a time when personal crisis hit my life with my daughter, and I had to make a decision about um, whether or not how I was going to measure up to myself. That's fascinating. So I sold it in really in a, in a state of like uh, knowing that if I didn't sell it, my daughter would definitely su have suffered and I would probably regret it for the rest of my life. So I kind of made a, a bigger decision yeah. that I had to sacrifice, but it wasn't really a sacrifice because I couldn't handle the stress of running them too. Well, it, it sounds like you were managing director, creative director, chief executive and buyer all, all rolled up into... Well, I had, a buy, I, had a, I, had, I had people, I had like, I don't know, 15 staff or more, probably 25 staff or whatever, um, or maybe 20, I don't know. Um, so I had people in roles, but I had to manage them. Yeah. And it's a small company. And the thing is, is like uh, the people who work with me were brilliant and gone on f to big jobs. I mean, they're huge, like they're well-known, wow. famous, like fantastic kind of creatives um, and characters. But it's a lot to bear, like to be the creative head and to be the operational manager, the CEO, is a very, of a growing company, is really like um, having to split your kind of personality into two. And at the time, I was also getting a lot more kind of, uh, I was reoccupying my politics as well. And some of my politics didn't suit my company, though, so I have to freak out about my politics. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because at the time, like, it was pre... I think I think the landscape has become more political. Yeah. But out of necessity, the world is starting to wake up to the crisis we're in, environmentally. Um, also, the incongruousness of our economic system, how our economic system is actually funneling destruction. And people are in panic. Rewarding destruction, actually. Yeah, well, rewarding destruction, exactly. And also um, how we're in a pyramid scheme. You know, so it's like, we're, we're, so we, you know, so on one hand, society's waking up. On the other hand, we're at a point in our life where we don't, we're, we, we don't know how to jump off the cliff. And we don't know by jumping off the cliff if that's going to be the lemming or the lifeboat. Yeah. So we, we, we don't, we haven't, 
occupied the future with an imaginative state of reconnection and self-rescue. So we're in a bit of like a collective panic because we're blind to our collective wisdom. Totally. And so I think it's kind of really interesting. But before, when I sold Coca-Cola 15 years ago, I was already there. I already was seeing it. I understood where the world was going. Um, I was very well versed on issues like climate change, slavery, economic kind of um, abuse. Because yeah. I think of it as economic abuse, well, right? Is. Yeah, it is. Um, and so, like, uh, like say, for instance, I, I, I was already designing a whole line for a Middle Eastern community of women who were very sexually empowered. Um, and I was, like, taking it. So it was pre all of the awakening of, like, the prejudice around yeah. Muslim culture and the misinterpretation of Muslim culture. It, it was rife, isn't it? It's, like, mental. Yeah. How, like, when people... Nobody talks about Christians. I'm like, what fucking Christian are you talking about? You're talking about Catholic? Are you talking about, like, Jehovah's Witness? Yeah. Like, but we just... We banter this word Muslim around like there's only one. Yeah, and they <laughs> all think like, the same, yeah. and, and, and it's all bollocks. Yeah, and so it's like we're in this like melting pot of like a really highly politicized and polarized society right now, yeah. which is um, an exciting place to be because it means occupation. Like, how are you going to occupy it? And on the other hand, it is a um, frightening place. Well, it, it, fe it feels like there's no signposts, and that is both unbelievable. Adventure is always exciting, uh, but then sometimes it can become a little overcoming as well. It can just become too too much. Now, flip back. So, okay. so you're you're a few years younger than me. Yeah. Um, tell me about the kind of kid that you were. Uh, I. Was locked in my own imagination. Didn't I? Don't know if I talk. It depends on how. Pre-teenage, I didn't really talk. I was a mess. Really? Like messy. I was. Ju I used to draw on myself from my thigh to my ankle, and from my arm, my finger to my armpit. Any visible space was scribed. What was that all about? It was just. I didn't have enough paper. <laughs> so, That's so funny. Literally, I just didn't have enough paper when I was at school. I'm being, I'm super, super dyslexic, like properly. Yeah. Properly dyslexic. It's a gift, though, you know. I know it's a gift, but it's really interesting because some of my friends who are writers and they work for like some, they're properly Oxford, um, and you see how that still is perceived with a degree of, not disdain is a hard word, but um, lack of understanding, yeah. and but also a sense of derogatory perspective. Derogatory tolerance even sometimes. Lack of tolerance. It's, inter it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, it's like, actually you are a bit stupid. But like if I... <laughs> but you're not. No, but I'm not stupid and I don't believe I'm stupid, but like, I have to correct them, like, sometimes and just say, hey, dude, like, you wouldn't tell somebody who couldn't walk to hurry up and jog. Yeah. Like, like that's... Climb faster. Climb yeah. faster <laughs> or what's your problem? Just try harder. Like, that kind of... So it's still entrenched, even though we've got a lot more 
like tolerance to it because yeah. they didn't identify it until I was 14. That's late. That's yeah, yeah, late, yeah. So yeah. I went, left school practically not reading or I couldn't write properly. Like, I mean, I had a reading But I writing. can see the shame in your face there. I can, you changed when you said that. Well, it's, like the thing is, is if anybody has suffered dyslexia like I suffered dyslexia, school is painful. Yes, I can see. So, we home educated three of our kids oh, brilliant. because of that. Yeah, and exactly. two of them for five years. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, I mean, you're in a constant state of apology about it. And I always feel like I need to apologize for it. So it's kind of like it, 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 it has played a big role in my life. Um, luckily, my parents just thought I was lazy and not stupid, because there's only two options. <laughs> <laughs> and your parents were quite forward-thinking. So yeah, that's... but they were forward-thinking, but quite fast. Okay. They didn't have time to, you know, really like just state about what is wrong with your children. They're like, move on, hurry up. Yeah, catch it up. Yeah, catch up. Um, so I was lazy, not stupid, which was best option because you believe that you're bright then yeah. if they thought I was stupid I wouldn't have had a chance you know it's really interesting that you took that you were you were given two evils and the better of them is laziness yeah you're, you're far from lazy I know it's crazy but like it's something that is kind of like it's kind of really interesting like because the imposter syndrome that it comes with is quite phenomenal you know like like because you you, you can't you can't go through the front door of any circumstance. You have to go through the back door, which makes you much more kind of capable of getting what you want. I love that phrase. You can't go through the front door of any circumstance. Yeah. That's amazing. You've got to go through the back door. Mm-hmm. The tradesmen's, the trade person's entrance. Just wangling. You've got to wangle your way in. Do you feel like you've been wrangling all your life? I mean, have you ever still? Somebody had to write my bio for me because it's just like d- dyslexic writing a bio. A, a bio is linear. Ain't gonna happen. Like, <laughs> I've just had this conversation today. There's yeah. some coaching earlier today. Um, um, one of the guys um, was kind of writing down all the things he's experienced. And he's not, he's really humble. He's not very good at yeah. selling himself. He's amazing. And I just said, look, let's just do it in an organic way. Big circles, links, lines. Just, yeah. I, I don't want to see a CV. I, don't, I want to see... And as soon as you begin to take that linear pressure off, yeah, yeah, yeah. as soon as you focus on skills rather than time, suddenly life becomes a lot, lot easier. Yeah. So what did, the, what, did you, what did the childhood smell like? What did the childhood... What was the music that, you, that, that filled your ears as you were growing up? What were the smells that filled your ears? Well, filled your nose, even? Yeah, I grew up in a... Two households, my parents and my grandma's. Yeah. My grandma's house was very small, terraced house, and we had to use the outside toilet. We didn't have a dining room table to eat off. Wow. We sat either on the couch and or off, like by sitting on the floor, or had a tiny little like, you know, like tiny little one-person table that was for midget, like really small. Yeah. That you would eat. On, in front of the TV if there was only one of you. Wow. Um, there was washing on the ceiling while she smoked 40 fags. So like, I'm, I'm getting Daz and nicotine smells. Yeah, yeah, fresh nicotine. But she had always the doors open to the back, the back kitchen door, so like it was always aerated. It was, always no, it was never... It wasn't cocked. You had the electric fire up, doors open, <laughs> convention, like convection, air yeah, convection. Uh, so it was always clean. 
and my clean and circulating. My grandmother didn't have a dish a washing machine. Uh, she did have later. She had she had a spinner. Yeah. So you know, like um, her kitchen was absolutely tiny, and she had like I don't know, like three, four lodgers in her terraced house. Um, and so we were brought up with a lot of adults and community coming in and out of the house. And then my parents' home shifted quite a lot. Like I was first brought up in a hotel because my wow. parents owned. They were hoteliers. Well, they were like motel, more like like more like bed and breakfast, but with old people residents. Okay, so it wasn't by the hour because I thought we were headed down that no, route. No, we weren't by <laughs> the hour. And then um, so we lived in a tiny little annex, and then we moved when we were eight so they had the body shop by then yeah. to a thatch cottage and my grandmother's fridge like there was always biscuits and chocolates and crisps and food like my, there was like a conveyor belt of options at of your, your mum's and your grandmother's house, house. And, the, and the the fridge in my mum's was always empty so it was literally in my parents house every Sunday we did chores, we cleaned the whole house together. Yeah. In my grandmother's you were basically like a child princess that was just like like a, a mouth that was fed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like totally the opposite. That's really interesting. It's, so we got like these kind of like all, you know, we were expected to contribute to the house. And my parents, we, were, we weren't allowed to do anything in my grandmother's. That's amazing that is. And is that, I mean, I guess part of that is the, grandparent grandchild relationship and, and and part of that is i guess they were balancing what you didn't have at home or... no i just think my parents values were like uh we're working all fucking week you can work like oh, okay. you know like they were they had a work ethic yeah and yeah, they yeah. expected the kids to you know help mop the floor like to contribute to the sunday saturday morning or sunday morning a clean of the whole house because we didn't have cleaners no. so it's like they're not gonna like let us get away with not i mean they weren't like buggers right and what music did they listen to my mum had the worst music taste in history my sister honestly held up our music like she was probably my mum i'm not even gonna tell you what my mum listened to it's so embarrassing but like my sister was proper 80s like, was she Fleetwood Mac she loved like Elvis El- El- she was a huge Elvis Presley I was Cure Smiths yeah, yeah. I was like the miserable no we shared the same yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah and then um, and then my sister was more pop yeah and um, but it was a, it was a golden era of Mm-hmm. So, and the, I, I include the late 70s right the way through till to sort of 90, well even with Blur and, and, and uh, not Britpop but first album Blur, pop was, was, was in the ascendance and, and even the you know, glory, my dirty little secret is I absolutely adore the Pet Shop Boys and Neil Tennant's book of lyrics in a poem is it, beautiful yeah. and, and the way that he was able to take kind of gentle sentiment and make it soar with music around it was was stunning and pop music was brilliant i listening to early culture club recently and thinking yeah yeah poetic to but the also point. like storytelling like jenny somerville like i've never heard anything like that before like the the, the pain small town boy yeah small town boy yeah. that that 
kind of cross the boundaries of sexuality yeah. because it was so obvious. But it was so rare at that yeah. point to do so. Yeah, exactly. And I just like the 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 orchestral kind of like play behind him was just like amazing. But I, you, when you look back at the videos in the eighties, you really start to realise that even though socially we were very uptight, culturally we were bending it everywhere. Yeah. And actually the definition of um, gender was irrelevant yeah. because you know you had like um, Dexy Midnight Runners all in dungarees. All, all, in, all in uniform, yeah. essentially. Yeah. yeah, but dungarees uniform. Yeah. But then, so that's totally asexual. Yeah. Then you had like Toya Wilcox doing God Watch, whatever she was doing. Like and then you had Marilyn and you had um, Scritti Politti. Scritti Politti, Boy George. Green was incredibly f- feminine. Yeah, exactly. Boy George, who my, one of my old school friends fancied, and he didn't realise he, he was a guy. Snap. Do you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and then so, but, but nobody cared. Uh-huh. Like, nobody was questioning their capacity to express themselves from a fashion perspective. In fact, if you were a rock star and you were boring, it was like, what the hell are you doing? I, I agree, and I, this is where my musical elitism emerged. Yes. And it, wasn't, it was nothing to do with music. Yeah. It was to do with what they were wearing. Yeah. And, and I, it was, I, I've had this massive issue with Queen for years where I've just thought they're really overrated. And, and I liked really early Queen, and I didn't like anything else, and I couldn't understand why until I watched Bohemian Rhapsody recently. I, I, I suddenly realised. I, I thought Freddie Mercury went from really cool to really dull. Yeah, it, yeah. Fashion-wise, not yeah, any yeah. any other part of his life was fucking incredible. Yeah. But I just looked at what he was wearing and thought that is really boring. Yeah. And my entire writing off of one of the most successful, one of the best British pop bands ever, was down to the fact that he wore boxer boots, a white vest, and ill-fitting jeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so shallow. Yeah, it's so interesting. But, but I expect my pop stars to not look like yeah. the people watching them. Yeah. And that really mattered. Yeah. And that new romantic era, and that pre-new romantic era of the Thompson Twins and, and Human League and Heaven 17, when they were a 27-piece collective, the Thompson Twins, dressed ridiculously but also well. like because it was the era of punk as well like yeah. you're sitting there and you're like the expectation or the hope is that you were car- they were carving a, a, the, the path to rebellion and we wanted rebellion and rebellion was something that like youth identified with and so now like it's so commercialized to a level yeah. that and so constrained within that that rebellion is so capitalised upon, whereas before it didn't look, it didn't feel as capitalised upon. Agree. And so it's kind of like this crazy now interplay between commerciality, the capitalisation through like Instagram, yeah. and actually the loss of voice, and also social media, which is promoting a d- democracy of voice. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it, 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 it's not... So it's a lock, maybe a lot loss of individual voice, and a, but it's not a raising of collective voice, is it? it, it it's absolutely fascinating. You're, you're, you're right. We looked to popular culture for, for rebellion. Now, that still exists, yeah. but it's in black music. It's in grime. It, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's still there, Sam. Mm-hmm. It's just not... It's just not as easy to see. Yeah. For, for me, as a yeah. white 50-year-old man, yeah. it's really hard. But you shouldn't... You know, one of my big 
problems at the moment is is the fact that my that's my, why I'm archaic. But we are Do archaic. You know, I am archaic. I'm like I've lost the you know I'm not on the pulse. But I am with certain things like vaginas, but like <laughs> I see. I like. But but, but things. My 15 year old and my mum both love the same music, and I don't think that should ever be the case. Oh. I genuinely think you you should hate the music your parents like, and you should and you get back to it later. I, I you know mm. I hated I loved Fleetwood Mac when I was driving around the Warwickshire countryside in the back of a Ford Cortina, um, and then I hated it during the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, because my parents liked it. And now, with some irony, I can like it again. It's right. okay, because yeah. it was the past. Um, but there's a period where you must rebel, mm-hmm. and, and I don't feel that that's there anymore. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's just because, because I try harder to like their music. Maybe that's what it, mm-hmm. what it is. So I, I've got this image, I've got this, like, this, 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 this young woman covered in her own drawings, yeah. um, listening to proto-punk, and in a 14 diagnosed as, as dyslexic. 15 got kicked out of I was going to say, what happened next? 15 I got kicked out of school. 16, 16, just like on the verge of 16. Yeah. Um, because I was academically, just couldn't keep, I wasn't like, I thought I had five O-levels, I had two and one was maths and the other was art. So like, I mean, there was no way, my art, te- like, my art teacher was amazing, basically said that I'd never go to school, ever. And at that point, that was it. I was flung out of my boarding school, which was called French Heights, which was a liberal arts boarding school. Yeah. Uh, my parents came into money when I was 13, so that's when we all got sent, like... Private education. Private education. And then, um... Do, do you wish they had so you, no, I love my boarding school. Did you, I was going to say. I loved it. It was, well, it was a liberal arts boarding school. It's like, you couldn't teach by first name, you wore your own clothes, like, you debated, it was like, you, we went on protests. Like, there was so much I got from how I was socialised there, and it gave me all of my, like, capacity to black. That's brilliant. It, it gave me my, conf- my social confidence came from that school. So I've got a lot to be thankful for, I'm not, I can't blame them for my own academic kind of like um, misgivings because it was a different era and a different age and whatever, I don't know, that's, that's what it was. Um, but when I got kicked out of school, I went to work for my aunt in the body shop in Bath and then I got fired. <laughs> and then for, for whatever reason, um, but at that point, I was really like renegade, so I was going to drunk, I was get, getting drunk and going to work drunk, and then wearing a trainee badge. I've been working in the body shop since I was four, and I'd only wear a trainee's badge. And anybody come in and ask me a question, I'd be like, I'm a trainee. And then um, <laughs> I got everybody to leave their jobs, do their dream, and my aunt was like, You can't encourage all my staff to leave and do their dreams. <laughs> So she's like, I love you, you've got to leave. I love you, you're toxic. Yeah, I love you, you've got to leave. And then my, then my life started. Okay, and yeah. what started it? I, my best friend's mum at the time was one of the people who worked with my mum and she was the key person to take fair trade. Well, my mum was of key, my mum was, my parents were the, people who took fair trade from the charity sector and food sector and brought it into, or the charity sector actually, and brought it into the commercial world. Yeah. And there was this woman called Mara Amatz and 
she basically went around the world and she kind of elevated kind of traditional crafts to museum quality yeah. and I loved her a lot and she took me to Nepal with her to set up a, a paper making project and I lived in Nepal for like a brief like five months and like that that just kind of gave me an education that basically landed me in myself and my politics and actually understanding how disenfranchised not disenfranchised is the word but dysfunctional the NGO world was and how like um, misspent it is and it's what is it what did they say the the road to hell is paved with good intentions yeah and I had witnessed that first hand in Nepal and I suddenly it kind of like broke the fabric of my trust but also showed me how incompetent um, like huge institutions are because I was going off to look at various different projects and realized like the United Nations who were setting up like a um, and uh, there was like a lot of different big organizations who had set up like um, sewing projects in Nepal where they didn't even have electricity and they were sending like machines. sewing machines that were electric and nobody had even bothered to go to the village it was just like these it was like these reports were generated and these kind of schemes were created and this SOAS Oxford educated kind of problem solution um, uh, had been strategized. Lazy CSR though, isn't it? It's 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 solved the problem that exists by doing it but, how we do it. But this that. is why the world is in such a nobody wants to deal with nobody wants to hear from the people whose whose lives have to live the lives we want to solve. Yeah. Nobody wants to no, the way we treat the poor is disgusting in the sense that we that we look at poverty as an unintelligent state that doesn't have its own perspective of wisdom, that we don't give it a platform to be heard, we don't give it a, we don't empower people within certain sectors of society to solve their own problems. We're so, we colonialize fucking everything. And, and there's and something there. And poverty we colonize, we colonize poverty. Oh, we, we've instigated we it. We we've instigated, we create it, and we entrench it. And there's a political gain in doing so. An economic gain. Yeah. So, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Totally fascinating. So, you spent time in Nepal, and then where did you go? After that, I came back, and then I went to Brazil. Yeah. Right? Uh, my mum took me to a gathering of 150 different nations in um, Altamira. Yeah. First nation, like indigenous tribes and they were protesting a hydroelectric dam that was going to inundate like I think 5,000 square kilometers of jungle. And I went there and then, then I went create, no, I went big time. Yeah. Because I was, I think I was about 18. And I, I remember this campaign. Yeah, and I with Rani and Sting. I don't know if you remember like, yeah, anyway, at that point, I was, I just, it changed the way I saw the world in a way I would have, could have never imagined. Because when I heard, I, 
you know, you're brought up and at that time in life, um, in the 80s, you weren't taught to question authority. And the system ha was overarchingly paternalistic. Yeah, it was. In the sense that, trust us, we're doing our best for you. And that's how it is. And that's how yeah. it is. And actually, of course we do things right. Of course we do things honourable. And, like, nobody had even... Like, at the time, like, greenhouse gases was a conspiracy theory. And ozone layer was just... It was ridiculous. And the idea of global warming was a... It was a laughable subsect yeah, of it culture. Fanciful, it yeah. was fanciful. But the government cares. We do our best. And we do our best for everyone. And how we treat other countries and developing world, we're here to make their lives better and to bring, you know, like this. We had this, you know, real perspective. And when I went to Brazil, I had no idea that genocide was occurring, cultural genocide. I had no idea that you could invade somebody's um, world that they'd been living beyond our culture and say that we have a right to remove them from everything they knew. I was just like, how can we do this? This is, and on top of that, how the, the norm was to murder the leaders in charge. And this was undocumented, unvocalized, un, uh, amplified by the media. And I had no idea that this could occur. And I had no idea that and this is what I saw firsthand, that uh, slave labour existed, and I saw slave labour. I had no idea that child labour labor existed. I saw child labour. I had no idea that our economic system was woven with human exploitation and environmental destruction, and I saw it all. And I was 18 years old, and I was just like, we've got to tell people they have no fucking idea once they know. They'll change. They'll change. They'll, they'll demand change. And, you know, so I became very well known very quickly because I was a child. And I ended up doing talks all over America and Canada, Smithsonian Institute, University of Illinois. Um, I raised a shitload of money that brought a um, plane for the Kayapo tribe that, so they could. Um, mark their territory from illegal logging and I kind of um, you know was extraordinarily like driven and I drove my own campaign by phoning up schools and saying I've been to the Amazon I've been hanging out with the Kayapo tribe I want to talk about the destruction of rainforest I've got slides we need that the world is like in trouble uh, our economic system is um, like a is is dark and abusive people need to know and I went around school and I phoned them up and they, I gave talks at schools essentially and kind of tried Brilliant. to like raise awareness and it was extraordinarily painful for you well it was painful because like on one hand I'd seen people die like literally physically die in Brazil and I'd seen um, uh, I'd seen the effect, and, and being a young child, like a young adult, um, I'd never seen the infliction of like such uh, abuse, like 
when people are going to lose their traditional homes and they're being forced to, and, and uh, their culture is being forced into submission that's so unhealthy and so cruel, like to see, to hit, to be amongst those people and to hear that anguish and then to be able to fly out. And then, of course, you're holding the parapet. You're the witness. So then, as a witness, you're amplifying. So you've what got the conch. Yeah, you've got the con well. I've also got the, the heritage because my mum's Anita Roddick. She owns yeah. the body shop, of course. Everybody's like Anita Roddick's daughter is blah blah. So you blah. had the conch and you had a platform. And a platform and a big platform. And, and you I made had, a difference. Well, I made a. I, yeah, of course, I definitely made a difference. But the, but but the naivety of a 17 year old is you think change is going to happen how you imagine it's going to happen yeah. but like growing up you realize that you're not doing it for change you're doing it because it's the right thing yeah. because if you do it for change you don't know when change is going to happen you just might be at the very big beginning of a ripple effect that could last 200 years right but see so the, the the most important thing to keep intact is low expectations, high faith. Yeah. Like, but you don't have that as a kid because you're like, if you knew you were murdering somebody and your t-shirt's, you know, made by a slave, you really, you know, that, chi that, that child is suffering. You don't expect people, well, it's not my problem, well, I'm carrying on buying a cheap t-shirt. Yeah, cheap is my right. Like, as a child, you're kind of going, of you're a good person, of course you're gonna change. But then when people don't see it, don't experience it, you have to come across the naivety card. It's very nice you think that way, but it's never going to change. Uh, we yeah. are who we are. Now you come across the resistance. The resistance has led us to a shit world of climate change. The resistance change. is status quo. And, and yeah. I, I remember that same era, getting really angry about apartheid and explaining to people that it was going on and wearing my t-shirt and boycotting South African produce, all of which I'm not saying was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but we did it. And then not understanding when other people didn't get it. Didn't care. And carried on buying Cape apples and South African wine. Yeah. And the cricket team carried on touring South Africa. And you think, fucking wake up. Yeah. And they just put it down to that's the way life always is. Yeah. That's the way things are, Mark. And you don't, don't be so naive to think that you can change it. Yeah. But you did. And we do. We do, we do. I mean, I think that's what, we all matter, fundamentally, is the truth. Yeah. That, so, but like, you know, my perspective has shifted quite dramatically. Um, and that my belief hasn't. Like, I still believe, like, that it is my purpose to, or I choose to consciously believe that actually the most fundamentally important contribution I can have is to, to try to do better and to connect and to um, ease suffering, like unnecessary suffering, that collectively that we are, we, we live in a body, our physical body, if it's cut, it wants to heal. I believe the cosmos wants to heal. I believe the earth will heal, heal with or without us. And so I feel like it's our natural kind of disposition. So I, I wanna go with that flow. 
right? <laughs> that's my flow, right? So that's my choice within it to make that as a irrational, optimistic, faith-based choice. You know, faith is in I will have faith. I have. I choose to see that humanity fundamentally can only exist with the cooperation of each other. Like the idea that we're so selfish would mean that actually um, we wouldn't have been able to come this far in existence. I don't believe the narrative of that we're constantly being told and brainwashed and conditioned into. So I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, I th- I thoroughly did, um, and I don't know whether you know Sam's um, Sam's business, Cockadamere. It kind of. Um, well, it's 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 all part of this change towards normalising desire. Um, we live in really weird times, or we've lived through really weird times, and that's mainly me. So, so um, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, where you know, sex was it, it was kind of it was it was a weird environment because HIV was was kind of like rampaging through certain communities, all communities to be fair, and so. Everyone was kind of super cautious about sex, but actually weren't at the same time. Um, it was a really interesting time, and there were you know you watch the telly and there's there's videos of adverts with icebergs telling you that there's a new epidemic, a new plague, and it kind of it, it certainly changed my attitude towards sex and sexuality. And and what Cocker de Mer did is it kind of just it kind of just normalised a lot of that. It normalised female desire. It normalised desire full stop and um, and just such high-end products. So um, hopefully you've, you've come across them. If you haven't, um, check them out. They still do good stuff, even though it's not owned by Sam. And she's just um, incredible. The stuff that she's going to go and do in the future um, is amazing. And, and you know, uh, an absolute diamond i really really enjoy her company so that's it from this episode we've got um who've we got coming up next james victoria i think is next um and then i've got a couple to re-record so they're going to be coming out soon if there's anybody that you know or if you think you might be someone that would be you know really interesting to talk to in terms of changing the pace or direction of things um drop me a line mark at this is ape ape .co.uk or you can you can make a comment I think on the podcast and that will get through to me and um, I hope you're having an amazing day whatever you're doing and um, thank you for listening bye bye